Hey friends, thanks for joining me, Jim Baroud, to hear a few insights from leaders who represent our innovation ecosystem. Today's chat is with Adrizio de la Cruz, the co-founder and former CEO of Arcus and the author of From Underdog to Undefeated, the Adrizio de la Cruz founder story. I'm currently uh, an author. I wrote a book called The Underdog Founder, which chronicles my journey from the time I grew up in a barrio in Santo Domingo in Guayabas to help make ends meet to the time I immigrated to Harlem, uh, went to college, dropped out of college, became aircraft mechanic, then went into Wall Street, then uh, went to business school, then started a tech business, which I grew uh, and ultimately sold it to MasterCard. Awesome. Okay, so let's get into that. I mean, that just the story of you coming from the barrio in, 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 in DR. Talk to us from that, you know, that story you know, because it's really uh, compelling and and um, really just unbelievable the rise that you've taken. So, talk to us about. Let's start with high school um, or or middle school before you came to the states. Sure. Uh, well, I, I grew up with my um, my mom and my tia in Santo Domingo, and my brother. My dad was living in New York. He would send money back home. He worked two jobs, uh, so I really didn't get to meet or see him until I was um, a little bit older uh, yeah but by at that time when I was 11 years old I just felt like uh, my pa- you know my family needed some help uh, we were in a circumstance where uh, you know my aunt was working two jobs my mom was working two jobs uh, and we didn't always have running water or electricity at night so I would just uh, basically start with what I have and what I had in front of me was guayabas. We had a, two guayaba trees in the back of our house. Uh, I sold them in the outside of our house uh, and I took the proceeds just to buy candles at night so I could read at night. Um, but then uh, when I was 11, I got the opportunity to uh, get my visa and it was like a dream come true, man. It's like we 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 flew over to New York and you get to see the big city lights. Uh, I've never seen, you know, big buildings before. I had never seen a bridge before, right? Uh, so when I got to cross the Queensboro Bridge from Queens to Manhattan at night, my eyes lit up and I was full of hope. Uh, but unfortunately, the very next day, I, I wound up waking up in the South Bronx, um, which was a rude awakening. Uh, and there I was exposed to um, all, you know, the malices of growing up in inner city you know, New York in the 90s, if you, you can recall, this is pre-Giuliani, early New York City, uh, you know, back when, you know, you ride the subway and it was full of graffiti and and syringes. Um, and, you know, I walked outside my first day, I, you know, in the Bronx, all I see was broken glass, prostitutes, drug dealers. Uh, cops chasing people and that was my reality for the next you know few years and I was exposed to that I you know I exposed to you know and experience assault gangs uh, mm-hmm. lost my best friends to a gang uh, witnessed and saw a lot of the gang culture more than I care for and that was my reality by the time I was 17 right and so how did you get out of that? You know, I mean, that's a, <clears throat> that's a tough environment. Yeah, it, it was, it was interesting to, to be engulfed in, in that entire ecosystem because that's 
when all you you become what you see and you become what you're surrounded by. Um, and I was thankfully an introvert. So I, I try to spend, you know, I spent a lot of time by myself. I didn't hang out with too many people. I was definitely not the coolest kid in the in, in the group of my school. So I just spent a lot of time uh, at home. I read a lot of books and I became engulfed in kind of not only in fantasy worlds, but just like learning about the world outside of my immediate bubble. Uh, so I started reading about, you know, entrepreneurship. One of the books I read early on was um, the, the Virgin Way by Richard Branson. And that was kind of my entry point into thinking about entrepreneurship. Uh, and, and from someone, you know, didn't necessarily come from money and had some difficulties growing up. It's the closest thing I, I could latch on to. Um, and from there on, I just kept reading more and more books about entrepreneurships. We start doing things like watching Bloomberg TV and just became enamored with kind of uh, this world outside of my world because it was kind of a, a way to escape my reality even so briefly. And then so uh, you got the entrepreneurial sort of bug or, or interested in that, but then you went to, where did you go after high school? So after high school, I, I started college, a college of aeronautics in Queens. And then I also joined the U.S. Air Force uh, Reserve Officer Training Corp which is a program that you do alongside um, your college. The goal is to make you a, a U.S. Air Force officer while, after you finish college. And my goal, Jim, was to become a fighter pilot. I wanted to fly out of my situation. I wanted to escape it. Like I wanted to do anything and everything I could to get the hell out of my circumstances. So subconsciously, uh, I thought the Air Force was the best way to do that uh, in a structured fashion. Parallel to that, I actually took flying lessons at a Tiriboro Airport. So I started getting my, uh, you know, I took it very seriously. My life was aviation. Um, but, you know, my parents needed my help, make ends meet. So at age 18, I decided to pause college, dropped out of college and dropped out of the U.S. Air Force. Um, I was actually slated to go to uh, Texas for boot camp 2000, year 2000. Uh, and I dropped out and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to stop doing this for now because I need to help make ends meet. So I wound up taking one job, then two jobs as an aircraft mechanic at JFK airport. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, I was, you know, I felt very proud, very excited to take on that job because it gave me a lot of responsibility uh, it, it was good money. It was 16 bucks an hour, which was a good money at the time. Um, and I felt like, wow, I have all this responsibility. I have this cool job. Uh, I get to work with my hands. Um, but, you know, I did that. I wound up doing that for six years. Uh, and it's in and when you're a blue collar worker, it's interesting because it kind of it gives you a degree of complacency and comfort. Uh, because nobody around you is really trying to get out of that circumstance. Uh, they come in, they check in, they go to work, and but it wasn't comfortable at all. I used to work night, you know, night shift. I used to work uh, in the mornings, holidays, in the cold. Uh, it was quite brutal. But again, if you're not exposed to something else, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, so, uh, when I was about 22, again, I started reading more about wall street 
I read books like The Bonfire, The Vanities, Monkey Business, Barbarians at the Gate, Live Spoker. And I just became immersed in this world of Wall Street, which, mind you, was physically close to me. GFK to Wall Street is physically close. But figuratively or aspirationally, it seemed like a million miles away. So it was so close yet so far. Uh, and part of that made, made me want it even more. So I decided to go back to college. I, no college would take me. Uh, so I wound up going to community college, uh, Queensboro Community College, I remember. And it was weird because once you get there, it's kind of this world. I mean, if you watch community, the show on NBC, it's kind of like that, believe it or not. It's like a bunch of misfits. Like you walk in there and it's like you have like, you know, it's people like trying to make ends meet, single mom, ex-cons, uh, you know, older people like myself. You know, these are not the, the 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 future CEOs of America at all. These are people just trying to make ends meet. Um, and I I got there and I was like, man, this is a, like I need to get out. I knew I needed to do get out of there, so I wound up applying for City College, uh, Baruch College in the city, and that shifted my environment from. Uh, Queensboro Community College, which is in some suburb in Queens, to City College, which is very physically close to Wall Street. And I immediately learned that proximity to what you, physical proximity to what you want has a huge value. Like if you physically place yourself into something that you want, it, it automatically makes it more tangible. And this is why San Francisco is the epicenter of, of Silicon Valley people go there and they get to meet more people and it becomes kind of this compounding effect and the same thing happens on wall street so shortly after i went to city college i would interview in like 30 different places got a bunch of no's but luckily i was able to get one yes as as you need one yes to to get an, an internship um at ubs investment bank mm, okay so so this is your this is your transition to corporate so talk to us a bit about that. What was that like? I mean, it's a those that's a different world, right? Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, I remember it was 2005, and I just I told my my supervisor at 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 the airport. I was like, look, I got this internship on Wall Street. It's only an internship, but I'm not coming back. And he's like, Yeah, you're sure? Like, yeah. Like you've been here for six years. Like you're just gonna quit for an internship? It's a couple of months. I'm like, Yeah, I'm not coming back. Like, thank you. Like, here's my ID. And like, you know, you got to go to get your, to get your ID back. It's a big deal because you got to get clearance from the FAA and the airport. Like, I, I'm not coming back. I don't want it. And, and the reason I did that, because it's like, you have to burn all the bridges. Sometimes if you give yourself an option to, to look backwards, you will never look forward. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to go out into the ocean and swim. Like, like I, like I wasn't coming back to the shore. I'm going to swim as hard as possible and I'm either going to get to the other side or I'm going to drown trying. And that was my attitude. I was like, I was fed up. I was like 25. I felt like, man, like I could do much more of my life than, than this. You know, I, I wasn't like happy. I felt like, you know, I'm going to give it my all. And, and, and it was intimidating because, you know, <laughs> imagine, you know, being in this world where you're a blue collar worker 
your entire, most of your life, my quarter of my life, that shapes and molds who you are. And transitioning from that world into the most white shoe environment that exists, which is not only Wall Street, but investment banking within Wall Street, which is the upper, upper, upper echelon of Wall Street. Uh, I felt like very intimidated. Uh, no one looked like me. Uh, and even the very few folks that did look kind of like me sounded and talked differently, had a different vernacular, different lexicon. Uh, they definitely you know, were more polished. I was very rough around the edges, so to speak. That's, that's what I was told several times. Um, but I said to myself, man, they, they they may speak better than me. They may be more networked than me. They may be smarter than me. But no one will outwork me. There's no one here that will outwork me. There's no one here that wants us more than I do. And, and you know, it's funny to see people that you can tell that we're just there just because that was the thing to do. There were people that, you know, oh, I went to I went to Princeton and I took liberal arts and I'm just trying this investment banking thing. And for me, it was like my life. Like all I wanted to do was this. And it was so obvious that a lot of these kids, this was just kind of a throwaway for them. Oh, I'm just going to try it. See how I like it. And that made me, it made me like, wow, like, it's like wherever you walk to the things I have to fly to, I have to fly to make this happen. And it just made me like want it even more, right? Uh, so lo and behold, after uh, you know three months um, in UBS, I, I you know I got an opportunity to work at JP Morgan in the leverage finance department, which was one of those coveted departments within investment banking in all of Wall Street at the time because of the LBO craze that, uh, happening in the mid 2000s. Um, because mind you, at the time, there was like no Google or Square or, you know, Amazon or Apple. Like if you were a top college student, you weren't going into tech, you were going into investment banking. So it was hyper competitive. Um, but at the same time, it also gave me kind of a front row seat into success theater. So I was able to work with arguably the smartest people in the world. And, uh, and that was, well, intimidating, but also extraordinarily fulfilling because that became a real school and I was able to understand like okay this is what the bar is like the bar I thought the bar was here it was here like this is how these people interact this is how they behave this is how they execute this is how they carry themselves um and and I loved it man I, I was I was enamored with that degree of competition that degree of um excellence uh, and, and lo and behold, I kind of took that in stride. Uh, and that's why I wanted to, you know, apply to business school because I felt like all of them had come from a few, a few, uh, programs. Uh, and I wanted to be part of that program. I wanted that environment. Uh, so I had wound up applying to, to business school in 2009. Uh, and, you know, it requires you to have a GMAT. I, I, I took the GMAT. Uh, four times. My highest score was 570. The average score to get in was 750. And I was like, you know what? Uh, I don't have the score, but I have the story. Therefore, I'm going to apply with the story. Apply with what you have. Because what you have is plenty. And uh, I got in. I got in conditionally. Uh, I was the lowest score at the Wharton School that year with a 570. But I didn't care. All you needed is one yes. 
and again, that made me even more hungry because I wanted to just show the world that like you're not defined by a, a number or a test or your circumstances. You are defined by the path you travel to get to that circumstance. Right, right. Um, and, and so <clears throat> that's a great school. I'm sure there were some other, you know, entrepreneurs in your class or, or business folks. Um, what, what did you, what was sort of the one key learning or one or two key learnings from your MBA experience at Wharton? Well, uh, uh, Wharton was, I was able to get access to even more, you know, folks who, who come from like an excellent background, who, who have come from an environment of success. So it was, um, a higher level of just um, learning by osmosis, learning learning success by osmosis, uh, where I was able to kind of, um, get, I was very intimidated, to be honest with you, even more than, than JP Morgan, because unlike, uh, unlike JP Morgan, like here at school, you can fail out. So I was, one of the biggest things I learned very quickly was that, you know, if you don't, if you don't hit your grades, you can get kicked out very quickly. And the first semester I was faced with, like, I wasn't doing well. And I quickly learned that I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed with ACHC. Uh, and I learned that that was one of the components that had held me back so for so many years. And, you know, in the Hispanic community, impoverished communities, you don't think about uh, these type of kind of uh, being neurodivergent or, or being um, disadvantaged in any particular way. You just go through it. Uh, so after that, I was able to get more time with my test and that made a huge difference. Just an extra 15, 20 minutes per test made a huge difference. Uh, made me feel more comfortable, made me feel more, more confident. Uh, so if anything, the number one thing I've learned while at Wharton was, uh, is the fact that I, I had the intellectual capacity I just never had the tools to really, you know, harvest and cultivate these capacities in the right way. Cause I, I never had anyone, first of all, I never had anyone tell me go to college. I never had any coaching. Uh, I never had any role models telling me, oh, you should go to, you know, an Ivy league school. Uh, but like everyone else in that group did, right. They have been, you know, they have been groomed since birth for this path, right? Uh, I never had any access to that. I, I started thinking about this when I was 27. These folks were thinking about it where they were like seven years old. Uh, so they had a, like a 20-year head start than I, than I had. Uh, so I, it kind of helped me reframe things a little bit more, but... I didn't want to let that be an excuse or make me feel like a victim. I wanted to take all of that energy and channel it to get me from where I was to where I want to be. So you graduate from Wharton. Um, what do you do next? So after graduating, I just felt like really empowered. Jim. I felt like um, I could do a lot. Uh, and just five years before that, I had been um, working as an airplane mechanic, and that was my life. And I went from that ecosystem to not graduating from what was the number one business school in the world 
I just felt really empowered. So I, I always had an inkling to to become an entrepreneur. I felt like this was the time. It was now or never. And I, you know, so I decided to think about like what problems have I experienced that I want to fix. For me, it was remittances. And I grew up um, receiving money from my dad, then grew up sending money to my abuela and my tia when I was older. So, and remittances hadn't really evolved at all. And the time that I, from the time I had made, immigrated to the time I had finished business school. So I came up with this concept of, of uh, improving remittances. Uh, call it, you know, started a company called Regali. And with that company, um, met a couple of co-founders, uh, felt really good about it. Uh, that then was able to luckily uh, apply to a bunch of accelerators. All of them said no. And then we had about like two, three weeks of runway left in our bank account. Uh, wound up applying to, to an incubator called Y Combinator in Silicon Valley, which at the time already was kind of the number one accelerator in the world. So we didn't think we had a shot in hell of getting in. But we flew there, really prepared. We're very excited. Uh, then on the way back to the airport from the interview, we got the call to say, hey, you're part of the YC 2013 class. It was like, oh my God, it was like a hot out of the heavens. I was super excited. Uh, wound up being the first uh, Latino company to get into Y Combinator ever. Uh, it completely changed my trajectory. Uh, altogether, it was really truly a transformative experience, not only professionally but personally as well. That's great. And but for those folks that aren't familiar with remittances or the company, did it make it uh, easier, cheaper to send remittances back? What was the sort of differentiating factor? Yeah, it, the instead of sending cash, we noticed that most of the cash was going towards paying your family's bills or paying their groceries. So we we came up the concept of product as remittances. So you would basically uh, send like you you could pay your family's utility bills from from New York, for example. So if your family is in Mexico, you could pay their electricity bill, or you could send them a gift electronic gift card for them to use it at any supermarket. Right. Uh, that that was that was a factor. Yeah. Got it. And so tell us about. Um, I know you talked about how you know it was a roller coaster ride yeah. i don't know if we can get into the whole roller coaster here yeah. but tell us about you know um you know how you eventually you know sold the company um and what that was like well you want to skip all the good parts but <laughs> yeah uh you know we, we eventually sold the company in 2021 to mastercard uh that you know the journey leading up to that was uh the way best way I to describe it is because it's uh it's a horror movie with a Disney ending. Um and it, even the ending itself was almost was horrific. Uh you know the, the process we started in summer 2020 was supposed to take uh, a couple of months, uh supposed to take three months actually and wound up taking ultimately a total of like 18 months. Uh you know we went through a process where you know, I, it took so long that I went, you know, my my wife and I wound up getting pregnant and having a baby and moving to the DR. All of that happened between the time we started the process and the time we exited. Um, I learned a ton uh, about the M&A process. Uh, also learned how little information there is about selling a startup. Uh, you know, and I learned quickly, like, how much you cannot rely on your lawyers uh, you really just have to learn uh, a lot of this on your own 
there's a lot of nuances and intricacies to the process, a lot of mechanics to the process that I just was unprepared. And mind you, I was the next investment banker. Uh, so imagine if, if you did not come from that world. So I, I so uh, while it was painful, it did teach me a lot about the, the m and process. And this was the, the, the psychological aspect as well of kind of maintaining your psyche and well-being uh, while you you're navigating the sea of uncertainty, and mind you, you know we we're a hundred plus person team. We had two hundred customers, millions of dollars in revenue. Um, we're a sizable company, so you had to kind of manage the entire organization while you are in the pandemic. So it was a so it definitely a lot of layers of complexities and challenges. That again, the way I see it is just it just made us. It just made me a better founder. Right. And so now you've gone through that whole uh, journey and, and and the successful exit. That must be so gratifying, right? After after everything you've been through. Yes. And then you get the chance to work at Y Combinator, you know, mm-hmm. the the accelerator that puts you on this path that, you know, made you, you know, gave the opportunity to be so successful. What was it like coming back to Y Combinator and how has that experience been uh, over the past year or so? Um, what was that like? It was wonderful. It, it felt like coming home again. Uh, uh, you know, I, I was able to, you know, work with all friends like like Michael Siebel and Gary Tan, who who backed me the first time and just became more than investors, mentors, just became friends. Um, by just going back to the ecosystem, and ironically, still feeling a degree of intimidation and a degree of imposter syndrome. Uh, First, from like all, all the other partners, who who all also have had successful exits, uh, but but here's the thing that I was actually I learned midway through my my time at YC was that a lot of most of the partners who who like me you know had had successful exits felt the same degree of kind of like anxiety and terror throughout their journey as I did. Most of them. You know, talked about openly, you know, having mental health struggles and going through, you know, bouts of depression. And it made me feel like, wow, this, I'm not alone. Like, this is, this is actually the path. This is the journey. This is how hard this is. This is why less than 1% of companies actually make it to this level. Uh, and I just felt, I felt an immense sense of gratitude to be part of that echelon. Uh, I felt really lucky. Um, and I just took that in stride and, and I used that as an opportunity. Like, I'm just here to learn. So it was, it's just, I was there for about a year, left the summer. Uh, and I, I think about my time at YCS, like my master's degree in in entrepreneurship. Right. Oh my God. That sounds uh, amazing. And so to talk to us about the, you know, now that you were there for the past year, what's the state of the funding and accelerator markets? Um, or, you know, obviously it's a difficult time, but give us some color to that. Yeah. Well, as you well know, um, economy is about of our, of our midst of a recession right now. Um, you know, interest rates are high, so it is, is hard for a a lot of uh, investment vehicles to justify investing in risky assets when, Investing in a risk-free asset can yield, you know, five six percent. Um, so that has uh, caused a lot of downward pressure that's uh, trickled down to um, 
you know, startups. And so as a result of that, uh, early stage fundraising has decreased uh, more than 50% year over year. Uh, so whoever is getting funded, it's also getting funded with a lot more scrutiny. A lot of funds are tightening up their belt. Uh, they're really reframing how they think about growth, how they think about scale. Um, there's a lot of folks saying that it's no longer growth at all costs. It's, you know, profit and growth. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but um, people definitely having a more sobering look at the wall of startups, which I think is necessary uh, after kind of the, you know, the wild times of 2020, 2021. Um, but the, you know, what I tell founders, it's, you know, it, it's cyclical, right? We go through these ebbs and flows, uh, all, you know, every, every decade or so, you know, the last one was, you know, the, 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 the mortgage crisis from 09 to 11. And before that was the, you know, the dot com from 2000, 2002, uh, we go through these ebbs and flows, understand that it's cyclical and also understand that the best companies come out of recessions, right? You know, if you look at WhatsApp, Instagram, Uber, all these companies came out of the last recession. Uh, and that's because like, you know, there's more talent available, right? Uh, there's less competition, right? So the ones that make it, uh, make it out very lean and mean uh, with better talent. So that means you can get access to really great people, uh, a little bit less competitive. If you can get, you can figure out a way to sustain yourself until fundraising comes back, then you'll be in a very good spot. Right. And so the and the pipeline for the Y Combinator, which you've seen over the past year, it looks it's it's a robust pipeline of companies that have been applying. And how how do you see that those yeah? Generations? I mean, what YC is is its own kind of it's like Harvard, right? It's like good times, bad times, middle times, like you will never stop getting uh, high quality folks uh, applying, right? And even the folks that come out will will, will have some success in fundraising, just because they might like think about it. Like there's money out there; it's gonna go somewhere. It's gonna go to the you know the top of the top. Um, but so while I was there, you know, I it's it's not like there wasn't a recession, but there was there was there was less of an impact, right? Um, but you know. We're still kind of in the middle of that. We don't know what's going to happen. There's still a lot of uncertainty. Markets took a huge tumble last week, um, and you know, and there's an election year coming up next year, so that uh, even more uncertainty. Uh, so we might be in this for for a couple more years. Who knows? Um, so again, what I tell founders is, you know, tying up your belt. If entrepreneurship is something that you really really want to do, think about creative ways of kind of 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 funding your way through it like you know maybe you know keep keep your day job and while you're doing this uh during when doing this at night or you know try to figure out a way of of use revenue to to fund like actually charge out of the gate uh so you might grow a little bit slower but you give yourself a more a longer opportunity um look at you know sba loans or sba programs to fund yourself uh there's several if you're a diverse founder you know there's a lot of um a lot of grants out there uh get creative uh it's time it's now the time now, now it's time to be innovative and creative when it comes to, to funding your company if, if that is your dream right if that is your dream to be a founder and to change the world using technology then this is just one more obstacle 
but again, one of the things that I tell founders is figure out how to turn that obstacle into a huge advantage for you. And right. eventually it will. Right. No, that's great advice. All right. So what are you doing now? You mentioned uh, your book before. Talk to us about what's next for you. Yeah, I wrote this book called The Underdog Founder. Uh, I spent uh, about two years writing it. Uh, I started writing it at literally the eve that I saw the company. And I remember when when I saw the announcement on, on the NASDAQ, and it was like, Massacre by Sarkis, shares rise 3%. I was like, wow, holy shit, this is unbelievable. I can't believe this. Um, I just felt so overwhelmed with gratitude because for a long time, I didn't think I was going to make it. Um, I felt like, you know, you know, that scene in Jaws where, you know, the the guy's swimming towards the shore. He doesn't know he's going to make it. I felt like I made it, like, you know, made it to the shore. I couldn't believe it. Um, uh, and I felt like, man, there are so many things I wish I knew going into this, but not going into just a startup, but even when I was younger. Uh, and, and you know, I mentioned earlier in, in this session that I read the book called uh, The Virgin Way, Merchant Branson. And that gave me some color about entrepreneurship, and but it really didn't paint the full picture, especially as a diverse founder. For for where many times, even till recently, I I was the only one that looked like me. Um, I felt like I wish I had a guy that talked about all the things that I needed to do. It gave me a framework. It gave me guidance. It gave me motivation, inspiration. But but a practitioner's guide to how to do this, and that's why I wanted to tell my story. I want to tell kind of the story of you know, of everything, you know, the things I experienced when I was young. Uh, some of the, some of them quite horrific and tragic. I still wanted to talk about them because I think it was it would give people a kind of a frame from or perspective that would allow a lot of people to relate. Uh, and that's been the case. A lot of people have talked to me uh, from every background uh, across the world, telling me how much the books impacted them. Uh, and and that's quite and that's quite powerful because that's what I wanted to do. It wasn't uh, oh, this is how you start a startup. This is not. This is this is how you thrive and succeed in life. It's not in spite of the challenges, but because of them. Right. Um, and so after the book tour, uh, you're, what do you think you might do, you know, a few years from now, what's, what's next after, uh, you know, sharing this wisdom right now, I'm just helping founders. So, you know, reach out to me, uh, look me up on LinkedIn, Edricio de la Cruz, uh, right now, my goal is to, uh, spread the message, uh, of the book to as many people as possible and, and have those people spread the message for me, uh, I don't make a dime off the book, really. So it's really all about like really spreading this ethos of uh, utilizing your obstacles and turning them into uh, points of advantage so that you can keep stepping up your way into success. Right, right. And so, you know, this has been a great conversation, Adrizio. Um, we usually, you know, uh, do a few short um, questions, just one thing. So, you know, first of all, what is one tip for entrepreneurs who are considering applying the Y Combinator? Sure. So sickness is power. Jargon is your enemy. So the more clear, concise, and precise you are, 
in every point of communication you have in your application, from the video to your one-line description, to the way you describe yourself, to your LinkedIn profile, to your GitHub profile. The more clean, concise, and precise all of that is, the better your chances of success. I cannot tell you how many talented people get lost in the weeds because they put too much jargon in the description of their company, of their LinkedIn profile, of their product, and it makes it almost impossible for people to read. Remember, no investors don't invest in what they can't understand. Got it. And what about the pipeline of entrepreneurial talent? How can that become more diverse? Is there anything that you know the ecosystem can do? That's why I wrote the book. Uh, the, the way you can become more diverse, we need more success case studies that meet people where they are. Uh, and, and there are very, very few. I mean, there's literally like less than 10 Hispanic founders that have sold a company at sizable amount. Uh, and and we, we need more success cases. And, and I bet you don't know many of them. I know seven of them. So uh, we need to know more success because you can't be what you can't see. And and I think in the book, I highlight that in refined detail. Um, people need to be inspired to do it, but they also need to know how to do it. And that's what I aim to do in the book. Got it. And you know, earlier you talked about how hard it was to sell a company, even though you came from investment banking. So what would be mm -hmm. one tip for entrepreneurs who are thinking about selling their business? Oh, it's, it's it's convoluted. It depends on optionality, right? It's all about optionality. The more optionality you have, the better your odds of success. So if, if you're running out of money and you have and you have no and you have only one business that's looking at you for acquisition, you have very little optionality. But if you have enough capital in the bank and you have multiple suitors, the more optionality you have, the higher your chances. All right. The best I've said the best time to sell a company is what you don't want to sell. In our case, we didn't want to sell. We actually refused to sell. Uh, and that's because we were doing pretty well. Uh, and that actually made the process go a lot smoother, go as smooth as it could be because it was rough. Um, so the best time to sell is when you don't want to sell. Got it. Okay, this has been great. We usually end, Adrizio, with a, a saying or a quote that, that's important to you. What would you like to share? Sure. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is by the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, he says, uh, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. Nice. Got it. All right. Well, this has been great, Adrizio. Thanks again so much. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please like it, leave a review, and subscribe. See you soon.